Hey, and welcome to Hypnotize Me, the podcast about hypnosis, transformation, and healing. This is Dr. Elizabeth Bonet, and I'm your host. This podcast is not a substitute for mental health treatment, nor should it be. If you need therapy or hypnotherapy, please seek a trained professional. I do hypnosis all over the world, so if you'd like to learn more about me, you can do that at my website, drlizhypnosis.com. That's D-R-L-I-Z hypnosis.com. Now on to our episode. Hi everyone, welcome to Hypnotize Me. Happy to be here this week. I'm Dr. Liz, your host. So we're moving into season three with a variety of interviews. This one is with Tim Desmond, who talks all about self-compassion. He is a psychotherapist, author, and distinguished faculty scholar at Antioch University. New England, and co-founder of the Morning Sun Mindfulness Center. He has been featured widely in global media and has been an invited lecturer at Yale Medical School, the Psychotherapy Networker Symposium, and the Institute for Meditation and Psychotherapy. And his publications include Self-Compassion and Psychotherapy, the Self-Compassion Skills Workbook, and How to Stay Human in an Effed Up World. It's a thoughtful interview And it covers a variety of topics, including discussing the connection between a client and a therapist during psychotherapy, how to connect with our own children, moving into acceptance and out of suffering and the antidote to suffering. That's a really interesting part of the interview. Also a discussion about narcissistic parents and narcissists in general. And then at the end, Tim gives a really moving exercise about how to increase self-compassion. So I hope you enjoy it. Let's jump in. Hi, Tim. Welcome to the Hypnotize Me podcast. Hi, Elizabeth. So you are in Seattle this week. Is that correct? I live kind of back and forth between um, a mindfulness community that I helped start in New Hampshire called Mornings Sun uh, mindfulness center. Uh-huh. And I spent some of my time in the Bay area. Um, my wife is from here and I'm also working with some people on a, a at Google on a project for, um, to try to make empathy and emotional support more available. So I kind of go back and forth between, yeah, living at a retreat center in New Hampshire and, and spending time in the Bay area. Okay, got it. So you're in the Bay Area. What kind of project is this for Google when you're talking about increasing empathy and social support? Yeah, um, I mean, I can't, uh, I'm like legally not allowed to talk about all of the details. But what I can say is that it's really exciting. It's a project. And you know, we're uh, the, the group of us that are working on it, we're trying to figure out whether we're going to actually um, work on it through Google or do it independently. But the idea is to create a service where um, any time of the day or night, you can connect with a trained listener, like someone like a coach, counselor type of person who's been trained in um, empathy and emotional support. And just to make that as available and as affordable as it possibly can be. So wow. that people- yeah, get that kind of support when they need it. I have to ask, did this come from 
the origin of it. And again, if you if we need to move on to other topics, you can tell me because <laughs> you just said you're legally found. Well, really interested but, in that. Um, did some of this idea come from the twelve step idea of having a sponsor who's accessible generally 24 seven or like a phone list where in the 12 step program where people, you can find someone to talk to even if it's 2am. Exactly. So the, um, in some way, so I grew up, um, my mother started going to AA when I was eight years old. So, uh, 12 step has been a part of my life ever since I was a kid. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's definitely a part of it. And like the amount of dedication and support, but I, I think that, um, the sort of more direct inspiration for this was I wrote my first book, Self-Compassion in Psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it came out in, in 2015. And I was talking with some colleagues and uh, one person who is a, a neuroscience researcher. And um, we worked together on uh, on some neuroscience projects, but, uh, you know, he's he's sort of only tangentially connected to the mental health field. And he asked when I was done with the book, so do you think that if every therapist in the country read your book, that the field would be more effective? Mm. I said, uh, I don't know. I mean, there's no, uh, I don't know that I could say that. I mean, there, there, cause there's no, um, indication in research of, you know, there's, there's a lot of reasons why that may or may not be the case. And then he said, okay, well then what do you think it would actually take to make the mental health field more effective? And my response was, well, I think what it would take is if everybody had access to empathy and kind of general support whenever they needed it. And that it, that sort of cost and scheduling and logistics weren't weren't an issue, weren't a barrier. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that would actually make things better. And so then a few years later, um, I gave a talk at Google a few months ago, and then met some people there, and we've been working on this ever since. Okay, interesting. So it's really about accessibility more so than um, yeah. yeah, accessibility for people. Can you talk to someone compassionate? So I'm assuming that, you know, one of the basic tenets of psychotherapy is that the therapist is compassionate to the client and that that's so important to the therapeutic relationship. Mm -hmm. So it devolves from that to what if everybody had someone that could be a listener, compassionate listener to them? Yeah. Ah, fascinating. Well, I'm very excited to see what happens with it. Yeah, thank you. Me too. Yeah. That's a really interesting, interesting endeavor. If uh, any of your listeners want to, you know, are, are want to hear more before we actually launch the product, you can, uh, my, my website is uh, timdesmond.net and you mm-hmm. can, I think, a way to contact me through it. I know there, there definitely is. So you can, you can um, contact me through my website and, and uh, you know, we can correspond more. Wonderful. Wonderful. So the Tim's website will also be in the show notes in the description of the episode. If anyone's interested in that, you can contact him through it. So how did you originally get interested in mindfulness? Well, so I, I, uh, when I went to college, 
I had, you know, when I was growing up, I was, um, I, I mentioned, so I had, a, I had a single alcoholic mom. We were pretty poor. We were homeless for a little while when I was a teenager. By the time I got to college, I was just like, not in great shape. I just had a lot of anger and, and, um, and suffering in myself. And it was when I was in college that I was first exposed to the writings of Thich Nhat Hanh. Mm-hmm. And when I was reading about mindfulness and self-compassion as Thich Nhat Hanh teaches it, it just clicked for me of like, that's exactly what is missing in my life and what I need. Mm-hmm. And so as 19 year olds sometimes do, I just completely dove um, like, uh, in, into that world. And I spent, um, as much time as I possibly could on retreat and learning about meditation. And I would follow Thich Nhat Hanh to different retreats that he would offer and spend mm-hmm. time in the monasteries. And then kind of, as I was getting from my mid twenties into my late twenties, and I was just sort of like, uh, you know, you know, following my teacher and learning about meditation, I decided that I needed to try to figure out a way to earn money. Mm-hmm. And so then I <laughs> decided the closest thing to a career that I could just share my meditation practice was in mental health. So then I um, went into the mental health field. Ah, interesting. So instead of following around like fish or the Grateful Dead yeah. for older listeners, you were following around a meditation teacher. Yeah. I imagine that's quite a different path than like a fish head, let's say. <laughs> the fish groupies. I don't know. Maybe. But I, Maybe. I, have to, I don't know. That's it's pretty uh they get really into their shows, right? It's a pretty mindful experience for them, I'm imagining. So when you decided to become a counselor, then did you find that it translated? Did it find did you find that it gave you what you were really expecting it to? I think so. I think that as almost everybody in the mental health field will say it there's more business uh in it than you necessarily thought you were signing up for um, definitely yeah definitely yeah and i think that that's part of it in terms of actually being able to kind of just be present with people and just allow my practice to be all that I'm really responsible for. Yeah. I I think that that's what I, I think that we're lucky in the mental health field because I believe that everybody deep down has an incredibly strong drive to want to help people who are suffering and want to sort of offer something beautiful in the world. Mm -hmm. And most career paths, you have to kind of suppress that. Mm -hmm. And I think that we have a career in which you're really invited to, um, to ride that. I mean, we, there are obviously other downsides of being in the mental health field, but just that, that you can just anchor yourself in that, in your compassionate heart and just, you know, like, that's all I'm responsible for. Um, Mm, Yes. yeah, that's that's something that's unique and and not necessarily, you know, even if you're a school teacher, 
um, you know, there's just like a lot of your job is discipline and a lot of your job is like getting people to do what you tell them to do. And yeah. you know, mm-hmm. in the mental health world, we, we were fortunate that um, we can just be a little more human. Absolutely. And, and there's certainly schools of thought that, um, that follow more trying to get people to do what you want them to do, right? <laughs> to <Sure>. change. <laughs> but you don't have to. Yeah, you really don't. I, I think people self-select in terms yeah. of that. Like they follow the path that's really most comfortable for them. Yeah. And absolutely compassion and, and being centered in that compassion space is, is a part of it. But what strikes me is I've said this before about therapy is often when I'm in a session, everything else drops away. Like I don't think about anything else. It is solely focused just on the person in front of me, the client in front of me. And that experience is people experience that in other arenas. I know that. But for me, it's such a gift. Like, oh, I don't have to think about anything else really, <laughs> like, yeah. you know, yeah. any kind of worries that I have or this or that, yeah. or, you know, even an event coming up, not that your mind doesn't wander sometimes during a session, sure. but just that experience of absolutely being centered and mindful in front of a client is, is unique for me. Occasionally it'll happen on like a podcast interview. I did one the other day and I thought, oh my gosh, yeah, I was worrying about something beforehand. Yeah. And then I started the interview and I realized I didn't think about it once until I got to, until the interview was done. That was it. So it's, it's a very similar process. I think when, when someone can really be there wherever they are. The one thing that helps me when I'm working with clients to be able to, to stay there Mm -hmm. is so everybody who's been in the mental health field has you know, uh, if this hasn't happened to you, then it's happened to somebody, you know, where either you bump into a client that you're not seeing anymore, or a client comes in and basically you get this, um, you, you get some version of the story where the client says, Hey, do you remember when you said this? Mm-hmm. You're like, ah, uh, not really. But like, so you sort of nod, but you're like, I don't really remember saying that. And they're like, I've been thinking about it ever since you said it and it completely is changing the way that I'm relating to my life. Yes. And the thing is that you can say something to somebody and it changes their life and you might not even know, like they might seem like they're not even paying attention in that session and you only learn about it later. And so recognizing that that is something that happens one thing that I like to do is remind myself before a session and then sometimes even try to remind myself during a session, this might be a moment that changes this person's life. Like, I don't know if it will or it won't be, mm-hmm. but this could be a moment that changes this person's life. And don't I want to be there for that? Mm, yes. And just like feeling about like, yeah, I want to actually be here as this person is, you know, maybe open up to looking at life in a new way. So that kind of reminder of like, you can't 
you can't necessarily tell if something really magic is happening. And it might be. Mm-hmm. Um, what would you say to a therapist that, that takes that and says, wow, that sounds like a lot of pressure? Well, I mean, <laughs> it's a serious question. <laughs> you can't make it happen. I mean, no, it, like, meaning it, like, no, 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 that, but that's what I would say. It, okay. You, that, yeah. You can't. Well, no, no, no. Not that, that they would happen. make it happen, but more yeah. like, I, I know for, for myself, I am aware of that because I've been in, in practice for, I don't know, like 10 years now or so. And then I was in practice before, but I took about a 10 year hiatus from doing therapy myself. Yeah not from being in therapy, but certainly from doing therapy. And I'm very aware and thoughtful about how I choose my words and what I say and the information I'm conveying or my presence, like really trying to be as present as I can be for a client. But also with the thought of, okay, yeah, I don't, I don't want to just say something thoughtless. Yeah. Right. You know, I think if someone says that's a lot of pressure, Uh um, I I feel like you know it's hard because like in one on on the one hand, it's like we should. It's like when you're holding an infant, Mm -hmm. this very vulnerable life. If if when you're holding an infant, it feels like too much pressure because you know. Uh, this this life is very vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Then it's kind of like, well, you should be really careful <laughs> if you're yes. holding an infant. Like that's the, there's a good reason for you to have that feeling of like I should be careful here. And the the hope, and this is kind of like, so you want to be led by as much as we can our kind of mammalian bonding, because mm-hmm. if holding an infant wasn't really enlivening and beautiful to us, then yeah, it would feel like way too much work and way too much pressure, Mm -hmm. you know? And it would just be like, why would any, why would you ever have such like a screaming thing that needs your 24 seven attention? And it's, it is, it's being led by your heart that makes it worth it. And so I guess what I would say is if like, if being with someone who's that vulnerable, if that feels like too much pressure, it's like the, then the, the, there's a, there's a missing piece of like, get in touch with you, with the part of you that really loves your client. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, and cares. Yeah. Well, it's an interesting analogy. I'm a, a perinatal mood disorder specialist, yep. which which is prenatal and postpartum anxiety and depression. I had it twice myself with both my babies. Yeah. And part of my work often with new mothers is, is getting in touch with that soft heart because part of this doesn't happen with all um, postpartum depression, anxiety cases, but it's, often the mother feels very disconnected from the infant. And certainly I had that experience where I was like, okay, if they're looking like an alien to you and you really can't get past that feeling, then it's time to call somebody for help. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that honestly, I think that might be 
one of the most important, one of the most important things is kind of this, this recognition that as there's a, there's a term that the therapy researcher Barry Duncan uses, which is um, failing successfully. Mm -hmm. So I kind of want to go with this metaphor a little more. Yes. No matter how good you are as a therapist, what, what researchers have found is that the absolute best therapists in the country um, make significant progress with about 75% of their clients. That's like the sort of ceiling. Mm-hmm. And that the least effective make significant progress with about 25% of their clients. Okay. So the idea is that even if you are one of the best therapists in the country, about one in four of your clients aren't going to make any significant progress. Mm-hmm. And what Barry Duncan recommends that therapists do in that case is just kind of recognize, I, you know, maybe my client isn't ready to change, mm-hmm. but maybe connecting with somebody else might stimulate something new in them. And so yes. he encourages therapists to be like, okay, if there's something missing there, Mm-hmm. In your connection with somebody and they've been seeing you for a little while and that you don't notice any progress failing successfully is being able to help your client at least feel comfortable transitioning to a different professional in a way that it's like you didn't fail and they didn't fail it's just like there's a chance that somebody else's style might be a better might be a better fit for you I'm not firing you. You can stay if you want to, but you might consider trying somebody else. And I feel like it's the same with, with an infant. It's just like, sometimes there's just that, that connection isn't there. Mm -hmm. And the compassionate perspective, like what for me, what self-compassion means in that moment is what I need to do is recognize is to take care of whatever is coming up in me. Yes. So like something's coming up in me that's preventing me from connecting with this person. Absolutely. My options are um, deny it, berate myself about it, try to act as though it weren't there, Uh or admit that that's actually what's happening and respond in like a caring way. Yes, absolutely. Like we know we're not, we're not going to connect with every client. Like we know that generally, there's also this, I think spiritual side to psychotherapy that I feel like clients find us too when they need us, Mm -hmm. but it may be that they needed they didn't quite need us yet. <laughs> you know, yeah. maybe yeah. we don't know. We don't really know. There could be all kinds of different factors. Mm-hmm. But yes, admitting that and and to go back to that analogy, it's absolutely when a, a new mother admits, like, yeah, wait a minute, <laughs> something is off here and I do need to go get some help from someone who's compassionate. Like I think yeah. 75%, I would say it's probably more like 90% of my uh, benefit when I'm working with a new mother is saying to her, yeah. it's okay. 
it, it's okay to feel this way. It's okay. Yeah. Like, let's talk about it. Let's put it out on the table. Let's see what's going on. And then how do you get connected? How do you connect to yourself inside? How do you get that feeling inside? And then how do you extend it to your infant? Yeah. How does that process work? Like that's a, you know, I see it as, as like a loop, right? It's a back and forth process. And that's true of clients as well. Sometimes a client may be willing and able to do that work. Sometimes they're not. So, you know, a referral is appropriate. Mm-hmm. But um, but it is a very just fascinating process to me, that process of how and when does someone feel connected and attached and present and um and when am I feeling compassion and when does it disappear sometimes and what's going on there in that moment? So it is an inquisitive process. Yeah. And then like, whether it's, whether it's like with a baby or whether it's in a a romantic relationship or whether it's a therapist with a client. Yes. Or an older child. Or an older child. It's kind of like recognizing, okay, if there is something in me that like is blocking my natural love for this other human being. Mm-hmm. Um, it's So uh, one of my first meditation teachers, her name is Joanne Friday, and she lives in Rhode Island where I went to college. And what she liked to say is, if you're ever dealing with somebody and you're kind of wondering about, is this person just suffering? Is that why they're acting like this? Mm-hmm. She said, ask yourself, do they seem like they are overflowing with love for everyone they meet and joy because if they're not then they're suffering and basically what she says is if you're not suffering at all then you're someone who is overflowing with joy and love for everyone that you meet and so just kind of recognizing that there is always some amount of suffering that's present in us Mm. and I think that for for most of us when we, when we talk about suffering, we know that there's like this idea of, okay, well, yes, I have felt better than I currently do, but I'm not suffering. And from, the, from, from this perspective, from, from another perspective, a perspective that I find really helpful, it's this idea that when, usually when we say that I'm, that I'm suffering, we mean I'm suffering more than usual or I'm suffering and it's impacting my ability to kind of function in the way that I, that I want. It's like sort of impairing me in yeah. some way. Uh-huh. But in reality, there's always some, some suffering in me. And my practice and what I've learned from Thich Nhat Hanh, but really what I've learned from my own life is that the antidote to suffering is compassion, is loving presence is the ability to sort of like offer your full attention with sort of with the energy of I'm here for you. I'm here to take care of you. And that, that for me is what self-compassion is all about. Mm -hmm. And so recognizing the suffering that's in me with that sort of like the basic level of acceptance, like it's okay. So I guess like first it's like non-denial. This is, this suffering in me is there. 
and yes. I'm not, and I, and I know that it's there. And then two, a basic level of acceptance. I don't need to, nor could I just make it go away. It's, yeah. it's all right that it's there. And then third, sort of being, having compassion. It's like basically giving myself permission. It's okay for you to feel this. And just sort of even sort of like speaking to the suffering in me and saying like, it's all right for you to be there. I'm here for you. And that I can do that. And almost always it's, it's some kind of suffering, some kind of distress in me that's getting in my way of being able to attach or connect with whoever's in my life. And just kind of when I, when I recognize that and I can take the time and take care of it, it makes a real difference. Yes, absolutely. I think I'm trained in DBT, dialectical behavior therapy, which radical acceptance is a huge part of that. And that is that is radical acceptance. Like it's just accepting, okay, I'm I'm suffering here, or part of me is suffering. Perhaps, perhaps I can move into a bursting with joy at different times of the day. But yeah, you know, there's this thought that comes up and yeah, part of me is going to suffer over this. Or let's say you're having a really difficult a situation that you're dealing with or a person that you're dealing with. Yeah. And I think it's so important to, when, when someone moves, well, I speak for myself, but I see this in clients as well. When I can move from trying to say, I wish I didn't have this, right? I wish this wasn't happening. I wish this person was different. I wish this, I wish that yeah. into this is just how it is. Yeah. This, this, I've got to accept this. And, and finally being able to do that. The second piece of that though, is compassion. Like you're saying to accept it and not give yourself compassion. You're not really accepting it. If you continue to beat yourself up about it or continue to want to change the past or change something you did, then you're still stuck in suffering. You're not in radical acceptance. And then, yeah. Self-compassion is really difficult. It's hard for you to get there. Yeah, I, I wanna so like that that moment of like I, I wish that something were different. I feel like that is a, a really kind of key moment because what for me, one of the one of the easiest sort of techniques for unlocking self-compassion mm-hmm. is so so let's say. Um, my wife is going through a lot of health stuff right now. And so I'm maybe, I, you know, I, I get some news about a test that she went through and I'm just like, maybe it's sort of like something like outside of that, that, that sort of pisses me off and, and, you know, kind of ruins my day, or maybe she's in some pain and then she's kind of like harsh with me mm-hmm. either way on the surface level. I, it just like puts me in a bad mood. Below that, there's this wish that's like, I wish things were different. Mm-hmm. And for me, one of the best ways to unlock self-compassion is to, to sort of listen to that voice in me and, and, and basically say, you know what? I wish that too. <laughs> like, yes. <laughs> like, obviously... 
that would be nice. Yes. <laughs> it's not, that's not the way it is, but it totally makes sense that you wish it were. And that that is, for, for me, it's so much easier for me to have self-compassion because if there's like a part of me that's like, I wish it were different, Mm-hmm. And then the voice is just like, but it's not. There's like a little bit of like a, um, almost like a tightening that happens that it's hard for me to stay really in my heart in the same way. But if I can, if I can say, well, it's, it's not that way, but it totally makes sense that you wish it were. And I totally see why that like anybody in your situation would wish for that. Yes then there's like this, there's a softening there. Yes. Of that, I can have the acceptance of how it is and also like not being harsh on myself. So it's joining with yourself. Yeah, exactly. Basically. Exactly. Yeah. Instead of the inner critic coming in and saying, yes. well, yeah, well, it's not get you know, get used to it. Right. Or whatever <laughs> that harsh voice is. Yeah. It's a joining with yourself and saying, yeah, absolutely. Of course you do. Yeah. Right? Of course you do. Like everyone should agree with this. Everyone should like us. Everyone should, you know, it's like the five rules of the universe that we think everything should go our way. Right? Like, of course, of course we all want that. These are our human longings are built into us. Yeah. So that in itself is an act of compassion. And seeing that, like for me, ultimately, when people like are just like, okay, but what do you mean by compassion? There's another way of thinking about it. And it's sort of like, if you can see that every single human being, every single living being, I mean, or at least, I mean, however you want to, however you want to think about it, but at least every human being doesn't want to suffer and wants to be happy. Mm-hmm. Every human being wants to be like loved and supported and understood. Yes. And doesn't like being, you know, doesn't like receiving hostility and doesn't like, rece- you know, like when people don't remember you or care about you. Mm-hmm. If you can see that all of those qualities are what make human beings beautiful. And then you can see those qualities in yourself or in this other person that that's what's happening. It's like, you know, so. uh, What would you say actually for, let's say someone who's more like a a vampire of that, like that's, they want that constantly. And, um, and I'm asking this question because I work with a lot of grown up children, adult children of narcissistic parents. So often the the narcissistic parent wants this constant, you know, adulation, all all of this that gets exhausting for the grown up child. Yeah. Even if they see that with compassion. Yeah. I mean, even for myself, I had a narcissistic mother and for years I lived in suffering. Eventually I was able to see her with compassion. Like, all right, she had a, a severely abusive childhood. She didn't get all these needs met. Of course, she wants all of this yeah. good stuff all the time from all of her yeah. children and everyone else in the world too, right? But yeah, there's a, there's a person in my life. I won't I won't say who, um, but there's a person in my life that uh, I've had to interact with a lot more in the past couple of years, 
And initially I really sort of, I was relating to her as a narcissist, like as a really kind of a judgmental narcissist mm-hmm. and just did not like, always like interacted with her as, as little as possible. And then there was a shift in me that was basically starting to, so, so first I want to talk about someone who doesn't actually have a lot of control over me. Cause this is a, a little different when it's apparent. Okay. But um, I started to see her as somebody who really doubts her own value as a human Mm. and only feels like being, maybe she has any worth or value at all when someone's sort of um, thanking her or going out of their way to sort of appreciate her. The moment that her, that, that, appreciates, uh, that that appreciation stops, she goes back to really doubting whether she has any value at all. And that all of her you know, defensiveness and judgmentalness is her way of trying to get people to appreciate her Mm -hmm. because those are the only moments that she feels even vaguely. Okay. Mm -hmm. The, the sad part is like, so it's easy for me to recognize we all want to feel like we have value, like just like we're lovable valuable beings. Nobody wants to feel like they're worthless. Mm-hmm. And it's also easy for me to, to sort of identify with moments of feeling worthless. Like everybody has them. And really kind of doubting or not feeling my own value or my own worth as a person. And so I can relate to that. I can't help her internalize a sense of worth. Yes. That's where, so, so there, there's nothing that's going to actually, there's nothing that I'm going to do mm-hmm. that's going to help her internalize a sense of worth. If someday she came to me and said, I would like your help developing an internal sense of worth, then maybe there may, there might be something that I could do. Mm-hmm. But until that moment, until she recognizes that that's what's missing and has her own motivation to make that change, there's nothing I'm going to do that's going to fix it. And so basically what I need to do as much as possible is when I'm, when I'm interacting with her to recognize, like, if I, if I give her a little bit of appreciation, I'm giving this person a moment of not feeling worthless. Okay. But the other side is recognizing my own needs. And my own needs, like, I, I really like to feel understood. All human beings like to feel understood. All human beings like to feel kind of seen and loved. Mm-hmm. And around this person, I get the sense of being loved mainly when I'm appreciating her. And not so much other times. And I never get the sense of feeling under seen or understood. Mm-hmm. Now, 
there's something that's really powerful um, that I learned from Marshall Rosenberg, the creator of nonviolent communication, about the difference between a need and a strategy. Mm-hmm. For, from his perspective, a need is something that is not about a particular context. So I have a need to feel seen and understood. I don't have a need to feel seen and understood by you or by any particular person. Oh, yes. That's always, that's actually always a shifting point. When a child, a grown up child finally is able to make that shift into like, you're not going to get this from your parent. Like it's going to have to come from other places. Yeah. Yeah. And it's this moment of like, there's something that's so liberating about giving up hope. Yeah. Yes. And it's, it's like, it's not even like that, you know, people talk about giving up hope, giving up the hope for a better yesterday. Uh (laughs) Yeah. There's like that idea, but then there's also like giving up hope that like, you know, uh, the person that I'm talking about is, is an adult and actually is, you know, uh, significantly older than I am. And although I, there's a chance that she could change, there's Mm -hmm. also a real chance that she won't. Right. Yeah. And that I will never in my life feel particularly seen or understood by that person. And I needed to sort of be like, it's most likely that I'm never going to feel seen or understood by this person. Yes. Right. And can I find a way to let that be true? Yes. To move into radical acceptance of it. Right? Yeah. To move into acceptance. I have a need for feeling seen and understood, but I don't actually need all 7 billion people on the planet to see and understand me. Yes. Right. Right. <laughs> you so go yeah. into the category of, of the people who are never going to see and understand me. Yes. And I can focus more on the people that I, where I have a better shot. Yes. The people that do. Yeah. Mm. It's, it's really moving to acceptance and then self-compassion. Yeah. In terms of, hey, yeah, I do have this need. It's caused me a lot of pain because I'm, I'm trying to get this from someone who can't give it to me. Yes. But I still have the need. So let me focus on developing areas and friendships and marriages depth, wherever you want to do that. People who can. And it's okay to have that need. I think yeah. that's often the crux of the issue for many children and narcissistic parents is that the parent tells them they shouldn't have that need. Right. Yeah. Like, no, you shouldn't have that need. It's it's not about them at all. Just to be able to move into everyone has that need. Yeah. Like your parent has that need too. That's yeah. Why it gets distorted in them, but they have the need, but you have the need as well. And it's okay. It's okay to have it. I mean, if there's a narcissistic person in your life, the, the question I would be like, so just d- think about reflect, and this might not actually be true for, for your listeners, but, but just reflect on, would it make sense? Could I make sense of their behavior a little bit? If, if I thought about only when this person is being praised and appreciated, do they feel any sense of self-worth? And the rest of their, their time, there's this nagging feeling of being worthless. 
That sounds awful, right? Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like suffering. Yeah. If someone isn't suffering, they're just overwhelmed with joy and love and caring. And so when someone's not acting like that, they're suffering. Mm-hmm. We're coming to the end of our time here and I yeah. want to respect your time. Yeah. I think it's been a really fascinating conversation, very unexpected, mm-hmm. but I, I've really enjoyed it. Is there a exercise or a tip that you could give for people to increase a sense of self-compassion in their lives? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, what I recommend Let's do the one that came up kind of naturally. So whenever you're suffering, whenever there's something that's sort of like a a specific disappointment, in fact, actually, let's do this now. I'll uh, I'll do sort of like a, um, my type of guided meditation, which is actually similar to sort of a hypnosis. So I'll I'll offer this for you to kind of for our closing. Um, Okay, so what I'd like for you to do is first, I'd like for you to think of Something in your life, either right now or somewhat, something somewhat recent, that you didn't like. Just so, something that just like didn't work for you. Something that was just like either a relationship or an experience that that you can you know broadly consider like not fun. Mm-hmm. Let me know when you've got one. Got it. Okay. What I'd like for you to do is picture yourself back there. And it's happening in this moment. And as you, as you kind of immerse yourself in there in whatever way allows you to feel really immersed, what do you notice in your body? Are you relaxed? Are you tense? Definitely contracted, like tense. Contracted, yeah. Mm-hmm. So for just a moment, allow that contraction and tension to be as strong as it wants to be still there, still in this experience, and letting that tension, just for right now, just let yourself feel it. I don't need to make this tension go away. I can, I can be as contracted and as tense as I want to be. And then just with another breath, ask yourself, What is it that I wish were different? And let me know what comes up. The whole relationship. The whole, I wish this whole relationship were different. And is it like, I wish it were more loving, more understanding, more peaceful. More kind. More kind. Understanding. Mm -hmm. Friendly. Friendly. Yeah, yeah. So what I want you to do is allow that wish, feel that wish in your body. I wish this relationship had more kindness, more understanding. And just allow that wish to be there. And I want you to see that Every single human in the world wants kindness in their relationships, wants Mm -hmm. understanding, and you want it too. We all do. Mm -hmm. 
every single person would prefer kindness and understanding to not that. Yes. And I want you to even see that the part of me that wants kindness is a beautiful part of me. I'm glad that I want kindness. Mm -hmm. Here is this relationship that's exactly as it is. I wish there was more kindness and understanding. And I'm glad that I have that wish. Because that's part of who I am. As a, That's part of what makes me human. Yes. That's lovely. It allows me to access the kindness. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Thank you. Yeah. Well, it was really great to connect with you and to meet you a little bit. Yes, you too. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Can you please tell people how to find you before we go? Sure. Um, well, you can find my books, uh, the Self-Compassion Skills Workbook and Self-Compassion in Psychotherapy. So Self-Compassion in Psychotherapy uh, has lots of transcripts, the types of techniques that I was just using that teaches you how to use it. I call it dialogue-based mindfulness training. Um, and the Self-Compassion Skills Workbook is sort of like a do-it-yourself, kind of you can guide yourself through those practices. Okay. Um, you can find those on Amazon or wherever books are sold. And then if you want to um, connect with me more, you can find me at my website, uh, timdesmond.net. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And again, thanks for being here. Thank you very much. truly enjoying today's episode. Remember that you can get free hypnosis downloads over at my website, drlizhypnosis.com, D-R-L-I-Z hypnosis.com. I work all over the world doing hypnosis. So if you're interested in working with me, please schedule a free consultation over at my website and we'll see what your goals are and if I can be of service to you in helping you reach them. Finally, if you liked today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast or tell a friend. That way, more and more people learn about the power of hypnosis. All right, everyone. Have a wonderful week. Peace.